This is EM Cases, episode 49 on patient communication. Dr. Walter Himmel. You can have great success and be somewhat dishonest, but over time it'll change your soul. Dr. Jean-Pierre Champagne. Achieving patient satisfaction is not fundamentally, necessarily, the goal of patient-centered care. And Nurse Anne Shook. Working with patients and families and not doing to or for them. If you have to eat a frog, eat the frog first thing in the morning and get it out of the way. You know, I will pour out my heart and soul to someone. Studies are only as good as the measuring tools they use. So if you've actually given them a rudder by which they can sort of gauge where they're going, I think that is remarkably, remarkably important. All great things can be abused. Bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. If you believe that coping with some of the people we deal with in the emergency department is difficult or near impossible, you're not alone. We all feel this way from time to time. We work in stressful environments where it may feel as though we have too little time to effectively communicate with our patients. You and your patients may have mismatched views of what's important, you may have a specific medical agenda, and they might have a very different agenda. There may be a disconnect in the perceived acuity of your patients presenting complaints. Then there's the difficult patient. We all know who these people are. The hostile, aggressive patient, the demanding patient, the know-it-all, the excessively anxious patient, and the incessant complainer, among others. If we don't know how to handle these patients appropriately, they may receive suboptimal care, grind patient flow to a halt, and delay care of other patients. And of course, if the staff has to deal with a multitude of these patients on a given shift, there's a sort of swarm-based escalation and frustration, and sometimes, unfortunately, a total breakdown of effective care. These frustrations don't only come out when we're presented with multiple sequential difficult patients, but for some of us, the more we practice, the more we become desensitized to the needs of all of our patients and their families, and we run the risk of destroying that ever-important doctor-patient relationship, as well as making most of our patient interactions frustrating, unsatisfying, detrimental to our health, and even the outcomes of our patients. Now you might be thinking, all this patient communication stuff sounds a bit touchy-feely, wishy-washy. You might be thinking, I didn't go into emergency medicine to learn about all this touchy-feely stuff, and perhaps you didn't. However, if you find yourself going home after a shift, bitching and complaining to your spouse, or you suffer from headaches by the end of your shifts, or you feel that you need more than one drink after work, you may want to listen very carefully to what our guest experts have to say today. After listening to this episode, it's my hope that what you learn and then apply to the way you communicate with your patients will effectively make you a happier healthcare professional. I've experienced both ends of the spectrum, and certainly I seem to enjoy enhanced job satisfaction and general happiness when I feel that I've communicated effectively with my patients. We have a new guest expert on EM cases, Dr. Jean-Pierre Champagne, who it seems intuitively has this incredible, almost superhuman bedside manner. He's famous for it. 
And every time I'm on shift with him, I secretly listen out of the corner of my ear at how he almost miraculously makes all of his patients instantly love him in hopes that I'll learn something from him. Now, it's a commonly held myth that these intuitive skills, like those that Jean-Pierre possesses, cannot be taught. They can. These communication skills can be taught and learned. JP will grace us with his take-home pearls and pitfalls that he's garnered from his superhuman bedside manner. Next in our list of guest experts for this episode is Walter Himmel, who most of you already know. Walter has done meticulous research from within the medical literature and from outside the medical literature to elucidate what precisely we can do at the bedside in order to help us manage the difficult patient and keep us sane in the face of years of dealing with challenging patients so that we can have long, productive, and enlightening careers that he so eloquently exemplified for us. And last but not least, in EM Case's first attempt at a sort of interdisciplinary education, I'm proud to have our first non-MD guest expert, Anne Shook, our nursing clinical coordinator at North York General Hospital, who's an absolute master at diffusing any emotional shitstorm, excuse my French, that made tsunami through your emergency department at any time. So in light of our attempt to teach you how to achieve superhuman bedside manner, know precisely how to deal with difficult patients, masterfully diffuse emotional tsunamis, and provide stellar patient-centered care so that we can have more enjoyable shifts and a more fulfilling career, it's time to kick off episode 50 on patient communication. I'd like to start off our discussion with a few definitions and sorting out what the difference between patient-centered care is and patient satisfaction. You know, it's only been in the last 30 years or so that the medical community has addressed what the patient and their family thinks about the care we give them in the ED. In the old days, we practiced in a very authoritative manner. This is my assessment. This is what we're going to do, period. However, in 2014, there's more of an expectation that patients and their families will be involved in decision-making, which makes sense since they're the ones who are suffering from their illness. So Anne, what is patient-centered care and why is it so important for us and our patients? Patient-centered care is building partnerships and that is building it with the patient and the family. It's supporting and encouraging the patient and family to participate in the decisions surrounding their care and in care itself. It's working with patients and families and not doing to or for them. It involves dignity and respect. It involves collaboration, information sharing. It's not to replace excellent medicine. It's to complement the clinical experience and contribute to it through communication and through partnering with our patients and families. Right. So there's a little bit of misunderstanding about what patient-centered care is about. You know, some people think patient-centered care is all about just doing anything the patient wants. Absolutely not. So there's some criticisms that patient-centered care is like running a boutique hotel, and we really shouldn't be running a boutique hotel for our patients, offering them fine foods and perfect service like a boutique hotel would. How is patient-centered care not just offering services? How is it actually integrated into the actual care of the patient? I think the best uh, approach is to understand that patient-centered care is part of evidence-based medicine. And there's a disconnect here in the understanding in many minds. Uh, David Sackett is probably the father of evidence-based medicine. And he developed this McMaster in, in Ontario, of course. 
And he said that evidence-based medicine was the intersection of patients' values, of the best evidence available, and of clinical expertise. So, of course, when he talked about patient values, he was essentially referring to patient-centered care. Now, one definition of patient-centered care is care based on a respect for the patient's values, preferences, and expressed needs. That doesn't mean that patients' values, preferences, and expressed needs dominate science, dominate knowledge, or dominate your expertise. What it means is, is respect for the patient is central. But to be effective, to be honest, to be scientific, to be ethical, the patient's preferences have to be combined with the best knowledge available and your clinical expertise. And it's the job of the physician, of the nurse, of the system to integrate these three things. It's not about amenities, although amenities are important. It's not about technical skill solely, although technical skill is essential. It's not about the patient's values exclusively, if it means sacrificing good intelligent care. It's about the intelligent, wise integration of all these principles. And it takes real thought. In the absence of thought, in the absence of integration of these concepts, that concept can be abused. So let's just review here what patient-centered care is all about. The definition of patient-centered care is care based on respect for the patient's values, preferences, and expressed needs. Patient-centered care is not offering patients amenities like a boutique hotel, and it's not giving patients antibiotics or narcotics just because they want them. If you incorporate patient-centered care effectively, then the patient feels respected, involved, engaged, and knowledgeable, which helps mitigate their distress associated with illness and uncertainty and makes them feel better, which is often one of the main reasons they came to your ED in the first place. Next, we're going to talk about the difference between patient-centered care and patient satisfaction. That brings us to the difference between what patient-centered care is versus patient satisfaction, because patient satisfaction is one of the metrics that a lot of hospitals use. What is the difference between patient-centered care and patient satisfaction, and why does it matter? Well, I think they're fundamentally two very different things. If nothing else, patient-centered care is the philosophy whereby you go about your day-to-day business, whereas patient satisfaction is the patient's experience or subjective residual perception, the feeling that they're left with, the perception that they're left with once they exit the system. Ideally, what we would want is we would want to have some sort of harmony between patient-centered care and good patient satisfaction when they leave the department. The problem, though, is that this is actually quite contentious, and I'm sure Walter can speak at length about this issue as well, that achieving patient satisfaction is not fundamentally, necessarily, the goal of patient-centered care. And the reason being is that, and, and this is my personal perception, is that patient satisfaction is such a highly subjective concept that is influenced by so many different variables that providing quality patient-centered care sometimes is not necessarily compatible with patient satisfaction. Give us an example of how sometimes you'll have high patient satisfaction, 
and not good patient-centered care or the other way around. Absolutely. I think that probably the most easily accessible example would be this idea of you have the common cold and there's antibiotics involved. So sometimes it is so much easier, and I I think we can all admit it's so much easier that in the face of someone who is demanding for antibiotics for their sniffles, that would it would be so much easier to give that person antibiotics. And what you've got is you then have a patient who leaves the system who feels that they have achieved what they want. They have met their expectations. They feel satisfied. When we know full well, if we take a scientific-based approach, an evidence-based approach, those antib- that is an inappropriate therapy to offer this person. You're going to give them no benefit and potentially expose them to harm. So that's where I think that's probably the most evident real-world example of where the two don't line up. Now Dr. Himmel's take on the difference between patient-centered care and patient satisfaction. Patient-centered care is a philosophy. Patient-centered care is based on ethical behavior. Patient satisfaction is about feelings. Now Tom Peters is a famous business consultant, and what Tom Peters said was the following. He said, perception is not just everything. Perception is the only thing. What patient-centered care reflects is the ethics of what you've done, the science of what you've done, and the communication of what you've done. Patient satisfaction reflects the feelings the patient is left with. There's nothing in the patient satisfaction which is necessarily ethical. There's nothing in patient satisfaction which is necessarily unethical. It's about the feelings. It's very similar difference between persuasion and manipulation. What is the difference between persuasion and manipulation? It's all about the intent. Okay, so that brings up the question, should we be really using patient satisfaction to guide our care? Or should we be concentrating more just on good patient-centered care? So what are we left to do as a clinician when we feel we're basically manipulated to manipulate the patient to giving us a good rating? You have a choice. You can attempt to influence the patient's feelings by being manipulative and expedient, or you can influence the patient's feelings by being ethical, doing, if I may quote that famous expression, the right thing. But if you're going to be ethical and you're going to do the right thing, it's a third skill you have to have. You've got to be where the patient needs to become aware of what you're doing, become a team member of what you're doing, and to perceive what you're doing. And that requires a considerable amount of skill, far in excess of technical knowledge. Furthermore, if you look at studies in patient satisfaction, you have to realize the studies are only as good as the measuring tools they use. There's a measuring tool in the States called HCAPS. It's a hospital healthcare tool to evaluate patient satisfaction. It's reported in English Journal of Medicine and it came out of some consultants at Massachusetts General. They measure patient satisfaction. They looked at communication with physicians, communication with nurses, patient amenities, pain control, noise levels. So they're they're very different concepts, but in the ideal world, in the ideal skill, with ideal knowledge, patient-centered care will lead to patient satisfaction. But in the absence of awareness of patient perceptions and the absence of communication skill, you may miss the point. And of course, you have the choice to be expedient. You have a choice to be manipulative you have a choice to do the following. Satisfy the patient and sacrifice good care. That is an option. You can do the wrong thing and the patient can feel great. You can do the right thing and the patient will feel great. So patient-centered care 
and patient satisfaction are slightly different dimensions, which in theory should dovetail. In practice, if you're skilled, they will often dovetail. But if you choose not to be skilled, or if you choose to be very efficient in difficult situations, you may sacrifice one for the other. There's even some literature out there that shows that the higher the patient satisfaction, that the higher their mortality is. So there's some people out there who have sort of rebelled against this whole idea of even measuring patient satisfaction. There is an entire literature over the last 10 years, dating back probably to the late 90s, looking at patient-centered care, patient satisfaction, and outcome. And the results are all over the map. Some articles in New England Medicine suggested that measurements of patient-centered care absolutely corresponded to patient outcomes. A famous article published in Annals of Internal Medicine, now called JAMA Internal Medicine, suggested that if patients were satisfied, mortality was increased by approximately 25%. This was based on a prospective study of approximately 50,000 patients. So how in the world is this possible? Well, first of all, it could have been a random event. One study is hardly sufficient to change your whole life. On the other hand, let us say you're dealing in a system where when patients are satisfied, they do worse. What's the only possible explanation? Well, clearly you're doing something different. And I suspect what you're doing different is in order to get patient satisfaction as quickly as possible, you're sacrificing evidence-based medicine. You're sacrificing giving the patient advice which a patient may have difficulty listening to. So I suspect if you want to get a high rating on the Presgany score used in the States, if you want to make the patients feel satisfied, but you're finding it difficult to communicate what your expert experience believes you should be communicating, you find it difficult to tell patients to quit smoking and start exercising, you'll sacrifice these points, you'll modify what you'll do, you'll give them the antibiotics, you'll give them their narcotics, you'll give them what they want, and you'll leave as friends. And of course, a week later, a month later, a year later, their outcomes will be worse. So when you sacrifice science and you sacrifice your experience and you sacrifice your values, and all you want to do is get the patient satisfaction scale as high as possible without doing all the work involved, outcomes will be worse. On the other hand, if you use communication skills, if during moments of debate, when the patient's expectations come into conflict with what you know is right, if you choose to manage that by communicating, by explaining, by redirecting, then the outcomes will be better. And this is why some studies show patient-centered care produces good outcomes, some studies show high patient satisfaction leads to poor outcomes, and some studies show no effect. The fact of it is patient satisfaction and scientific-based medicine and amenities are different dimensions. One does not exclude the other. One does not necessarily include the other. They're all good phenomena. But they take skill. And they can be abused. All great things can be abused. So, Walter, you had mentioned that being very efficient can sometimes be a detriment to patient-centered care. If you're a really fast physician and you see lots of patients in a shift, that sometimes it's hard to provide good patient-centered care when let you're that me, fast. Let me give you a phenomenal example I experienced two days ago. 
a patient came in. Her English was not the best, and she came with her daughter, and she had a note from her doctor, and the note said, this patient needs a blood transfusion. The story was she was having menorrhagia, heavy periods. Her hemoglobin had been in the low 80s. She got a call from her doctor who said, you need blood. So she came in, and her statement to me was, I came here for a blood transfusion. So I said, well, let's think about it. I took a history. I realized the reasons for her low blood, and her hemoglobin came back at 82. So now I had a choice. Option one, I could give her her one or two units of blood. She'd be happy. I could move on to the next patient. My problem would be solved. But I would be acting totally contrary to what I knew the right thing to do would be at that time. Option number two, I would sit down and discuss with her indications for blood, the risks of blood, the wisdom of blood, the options. And furthermore, I knew I'd been confident with her doctor's advice. In fact, as I began to sit down and discuss blood, her first comment was, my doctor's not an idiot, he's a very smart person. My doctor wouldn't have sent me here if I didn't need blood. Now, I knew right off the bat that this was going to take time. So if my focus was moving on to the next patient, I would have done the expedient thing. The expedient thing was give blood. What would that produce over time? Poor patient outcomes. At that moment, I decided to do the right thing, if I can use that term. The patient-centered thing and have a discussion. That put me behind. Eventually, she left without the blood, with other options, and although she had her doubts, she was reasonably began to what I said. Patient-centered care and patient satisfaction and doing the right thing sometimes is very labor-intensive. Some of the healthcare quality indicators are physician speed and physician compassion. Which is a more accurate indicator of healthcare quality in the ED from the patient's perspective? compassion or speed, and how important are wait times in determining patient satisfaction? In doing interviews with patients and families, most state that they don't mind the wait as long as they know why they're waiting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we we fail and, and it is explaining why there is a wait, the reason for the wait. And most people, when they have full disclosure, are absolutely fine in understanding of that, especially in an emergency department. And the literature backs that up. The literature shows that dissatisfaction with delays is less linked to the actual time, and it's more about lack of information about the events that are going to occur and the perceived lack of personal attention and the perceived lack of staff concern over the patient's comfort. And there's no question about it. If you've got the strength and the guts to go to patients and say, I think there may be about an hour to two hour wait, ultimately the patient's grateful for that information. On the other hand, if you shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, there's no way I can tell, the patient's conclusion will be, not only is there no way you can tell, but you don't care. So keeping the patient informed is absolutely essential. Now, I was taught years ago, if you have to eat a frog, Eat the frog first thing in the morning and get it out of the way. Because as the day gets bigger, the frog is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it'll be very painful to eat at the end of the day. So here's what I've learned to do when a patient asks, how long will it be? I look at the chart. I walk over to them and say, well, here's my best guess. It's going to be about two and a half hours. And I'll tell you why. And you know, there's a famous expression in medicine which says, the patient will not let you care for them unless they know that you care. So once I've done all that, 
by and large, the patient respects it. Now, if you want to avoid the problem, you're going to avoid short-term pain, but a couple hours later, it's going to get pretty ugly. And I think by not answering their question as honestly as, as one can, what does that leave the patient or family to do? It, to come up with their own assumptions. And we all know that assumptions usually have a negative connotation. They're not going to assume that the weight is due to a positive reason. They're going to form their own opinion, and it's probably going to be negative. Right. Now, there's there's a couple other points about this. There's a so-called Disney effect, right? So, mm-hmm. so in the Disney business model, which, by the way, I find a bit offensive, the Disney business model says, tell them it'll be a 15-minute wait, and then let them in at five minutes. In plain words, promise a lot less and deliver a lot more. Yeah, under-promise and over-produce. Right. So yeah. does that work? Yes, it does. We know from the principles of influence, which we'll be discussing later, it works. I don't like it. It's intrinsically dishonest. Mm-hmm. So here's an approach that I take that I feel is ethically honest. I give them my best guess based on what I know, and then I say, but I want you to understand I could be completely off. If we get a major disaster, I could be off by a long time. If something great happens with cancellation, it could be sooner. I guess suffice to say that overestimating a little bit is probably better than underestimating. Oh, underestimating is always the worst thing you could possibly do. Being honest and open is the best thing. And if you want to use a decision technique, it absolutely works. I'm not comfortable with it because it's a bit manipulative. As I said, you can have great success and be somewhat dishonest, but over time, it'll change your soul. Can can I take one quick step back? I'm really curious about how you would prepare a frog to eat. No, actually, that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) Would you roast it? Uh, Sous vide, perhaps? First thing in the uh, morning, just throw it down. <laughs> I'm with you on that like one. Like a raw time. egg, right? End of the day, Absolutely. whack it the head a hundred times. So now that we have a really good idea of what patient-centered care is all about and what patient satisfaction is all about, I'd like to move on now to strategies that you can use in the ED to make your patient-doctor relationship work for you and for your patient. JP, how can we improve our patient encounter so that both the healthcare provider and the patient feel good about the interaction in the ED? Let's start from the first second you pick up that chart and you're going into the room. There's an old saying, of course, that you know, you know, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And those first few moments, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, is really going to lay the groundwork uh, in terms of what relationship you're going to have with that person. There's two conceptual points that I try to incorporate. And it, it comes. It boils down to empathy and power. So empathy rules all, without question. And again, we learn this from day one. But the other thing is this, though, is that the doctor-patient relationship starts before you even begin with that patient with a tremendous power imbalance. That the patient is at such a power imbalance to you, the physician and the nurse. And right away, that is a really tough relationship to begin with. Yeah, they're in a very vulnerable state. Absolutely. And you're doing what you do every day and what you do best. Absolutely. And I use the analogy, I go to the mechanic, 
I feel virtually emasculated because I have not a clue as to what's going on. And right away, I have to take what that mechanic says as gospel. So one of the, one of the first things I try to do when I see a patient is I try to normalize that power imbalance. And there's a few specific things that I do. So the first one is this, and this is contentious, and I'm sure people will have an opinion about this. I always have the patient refer to me by my first name. I always do that. And that is something that I personally feel is important because as soon as I'm a person with a first name, not a Dr. XYZ, that really adds a lot of relief to the patient. The second one is this, you have to sit down. Much in the same way that power imbalance is physically reproduced when you are standing and looking down at someone. And much in the same way that, you know, we're going to talk about the difficult, hostile patient. If you want to diffuse that situation so very quickly, you know what you do? As long as it's safe, you sit down. And that tremendously changes the dynamic of the relationship. So going into the room with the goals in mind of empathizing with the patient and minimizing the power imbalance between you and the patient are key. First, Consider asking them to address you by your first name. That will help decrease that power imbalance. And second, sit down. There's actually studies out there that show that patients perceive that you spend more time with them if you as the healthcare provider sit down when you interview them rather than stand up when you interview them. Next, Dr. Himmel is going to talk about nonverbal communication and how important that is in decreasing that power balance and empathizing with your patient. We you know from... Lots of work going back to the 1960s by a famous psycholinguist called Albert Morabian that appearance and tone are powerful in generating trust and commitment and believability. So essentially, you want to put yourself at an equal level to the patient or even subservient. If you want to be at an equal level, be eye to eye. If you want to be subservient, you should be sitting at a lower level than the patient. That's well known both in business and in medical literature. Now the problem is occasionally you walk into a room and there's an 80-year-old patient on a bed, his 80-year-old wife is standing, and there's one chair. I had a real problem. Do I take the chair or do I give it to her? So uh, I've actually said to the patient, would you like to sit down? And if they do, I sit in the bed next to the patient. So, so I think that, that that closeness is absolutely crucial. It gives a very powerful message. Both human beings, I'm here to help you, and you're here to be honest with me. That issue of that single chair in the room is such an important detail. One thing I often do is I say, hi, how you doing? I'm Dr. Champagne, call me Jean-Pierre. And I say, give me a second, I'll be right back. And I leave the room, and what I do is I go and find another chair. And that... I swear, is such a golden intervention. People really genuinely appreciate that. The other thing is this. When I talk about sitting down, I always sit on the end of the bed. I always, always do. I think that's such a, I find that it's such a a personal gesture that like we're in this together at this point in time right now. And it always allows for other nonverbal communication. Like sometimes, you know, a lot of people will advocate like a, like a firm grasp as I grasp Walter here. Just or a little pat on the shoulder. Often it gives me an opportunity to sort of tap them on the leg. And, you know, when I say like, you know what, I'll get the results. And when I got them, I'll be back. And I just tap them on the leg or something like that. And I really find that those little opportunities really make a difference. You're forming a connection. You're you're building trust. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a fine point here. First of all, I didn't realize I do the same thing. I, I sit in the bed, I would say nine times out of 10. 
but there's a couple of fine points here. Number one, how close to the patient do you sit? And number two, there's different ethnic issues. Oh, without question, of course, yeah. You know, so I would say in the, in the Western world, mm-hmm. generally speaking, three to five feet is the right distance. True. Generally speaking, if the patient's 80 or 85 or 90, and you're a nice guy, you can get a bit closer because they're, they're comfortable with that. But if someone of a different gender, someone of a very different ethnic group, you may have to go up to three, four, five feet. So the, the fine points where you count, sitting on a bed is amazing. It connects, it avoids days, months, years of aggravation later. It's an immediate connector. But let's be aware of uh, distance as well. As far as touch goes, highly, highly situations. Absolutely. Yeah. In life, always know your audience, right? Absolutely. 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 This is not something that you can paint with just broad strokes for every single person. Right. So generally, generally speaking, sitting down, seeing eye to eye, maybe a gentle touch if it's appropriate at the right time. So go on, Dr. Dr. Champagne. Dr. Cha- I shouldn't call you Dr. Champagne. I should call you Jean-Pierre. <laughs> exactly. Please. Call me Mr. Champagne. <laughs> Some patients do that to me. Professor. So, Jean-Pierre, yeah. let, let's go on with some of your pearls now. So, we've talked about the sitting down. We've talked about the eye contact. We've talked about these things. What, what's the next thing you do after you've sat down on, on the end of the bed? For sure. So, often, much in the same way, we have those opening 30 seconds to make that relationship. Often, I will say that my opening statement will not be something formal like, what brings you to the hospital? How can I help you today? I don't, I'm not a big fan of those. Often, what my, my opening question is, how are you doing today? What's going on? And often, in nine times out of ten, of course, they'll say something like, you know, I'm fine. Things are good. And then I'll make a joke like, fine, get out of here. I, I, I do that so, so very, very commonly. But I try to start the, the, the conversation as a conversation, not just a question-answer Socratic sort of pursuit. Everyone knows to avoid medical jargon. Always, always do. Or if you do need to incorporate something like that, always follow that up with uh, sort of a layman's term explanation of what the pancreas is or what the gallbladder is or something to that effect. So let's talk a little bit more about that opening statement. You had said you'd like it as a conversation. Hi, how you doing today? What are some of the other options in terms of that opening statement? Let's say you're not so comfortable just saying, hey, how you doing? And you, you tend to be a little bit more formal. What are, what are the other? Yes, I'm a bit more formal. Introduce myself and in saying I'm Dr. Himmel or I'm Dr. Walter Himmel or I'm Walter Himmel, emergency doctor. I vary depending on the age of the patients and how formal I perceive they are. If I think they're very formal and official, I'll say I'm Dr. Himmel. But one thing I do almost always, there are exceptions, is shake the hand of every person in the room and look him in the eye. Absolutely. And I've actually had a room where there have been four or five patients, and I say, I'm Dr. Himmel, you are so, and I'll shake the patient's hand, and then the patient's significant other hand, and then the children's hand, like every single hand. Absolutely. And it is phenomenally powerful. Now, certainly, certain ethnic groups, no need to name them, or that's not acceptable. Then I will nod at them and, and not shake their hand. So I have to, that, that takes a bit of guesswork and so forth. I've even got the point where sometimes I shake the hand of a three or four or five-year-old. And some of the things is absolutely hilarious. It's <laughs> fantastic. So you've got to judge how it's going to go, but I tend to prefer shaking hands with all these people. And that's one thing I do right off the bat. And I definitely have to use my name and I use their name. Now, we know something called road rage. Now, what is road rage? Road rage is behavior 
when you don't know their name. When you know their name, there is no road rage, at least far less because you've just personalized the relationship. So you call them by their first name, generally speaking? Maybe if it's an older person, you, you call them Mr. Smith? Um, I always use last name. Even last if name. Always 20 year old, 15 year old, well, maybe not 15 year old, but someone who's quite a bit younger than me, absolutely, I would still use their last name. That kind of is giving the patient the feeling that you respect them. You're, absolutely. You're, you're, it's you're it's you're a sign of deference. Yeah. I, I agree completely. I basically depower myself and empower the patient. I'm totally fine about it, and the patients really receive it. Some just nod and they carry on. Others say, you can call me by my first name. Now, if you use someone's first name and they resent it, you're dead. Sometimes, depending on what community you work in, the last names are very difficult to pronounce. Yep. Yeah. From my personal experience, if I can pronounce the person's last name that has 26 letters, yep. I get a grin ear to ear. They love it. Absolutely. That. If you actually fight through that, they, I, I, I sincerely believe that they appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. and then if you get it wrong, you, you ask them how to pronounce it properly, and then you say it again until you get it right, sure. and they really appreciate that. So just a little review here. First, ask them to address you by your first name if they appear like non-formal types. Shake hands with everyone in the room if it's culturally acceptable. Remember to wash your hands after. And sit down. Consider using the adult patient's last name, again, to empower them. And put yourself at an equal level, eye-to-eye, or even subservient to the patient. Consider sitting at the end of the stretcher and offer a chair to a family member. A tap or a gentle touch helps to form a connection and build trust if it's culturally acceptable. Some physicians, like Dr. Champagne, suggest starting in a conversational way. And remember, always avoid medical jargon. Let's talk a little bit more about tone of voice and body language. I mean, these things we don't usually think about too much in the emergency department because we have a lot of other things on our mind. Can you give our listeners some tips on tone of voice, body language. We talked a little bit about eye contact already. What other things should we be aware of in the way we present ourselves and things that we can easily control or do well, in the, the emergency Well, the first department? thing I want to say is there's tremendous scientific evidence behind what I'm about to express. So Albert Morabian was the, uh, the researcher on this. What he demonstrated basically was that when it came to believability in the human interaction, 55% was based on the way you looked. 38% was based on the way you sounded. And 7% was based on what you actually said, the content of what you said. This does not mean content is not important. Content is crucial. But if your content is lovely and your nonverbal communication, your body language is poor, your content will be absolutely disbelieved and ignored. So nonverbal communication is about what? It's about producing trust instantaneously. Now every reptile, every dinosaur, every animal knows there's only one question you have to ask. Is it safe? And the answer to the question, is it safe, usually occurs instantaneously in a millisecond or less. Because it's all about your thalamus and your limbic system and your amygdala. And you want to be very limbic system pleasant. Limbic system is probably 60, 70, 80 
million years old. Language is just an infant. So uh, what do I do? Comfortable, non-threatening, open postures. Number one, the smile. There's no society in which a smile doesn't generate a smile and comfortable feelings. There's no society in which a frown doesn't generate fear and resentment. Number two, eye contact. Now, with exceptions to this rule, there's probably some cultures where eye contact will be not the best thing to do in the world. And the question of eye contact is the following. Do you want to intimidate? Do you want to show disinterest? Or do you want to connect? So the studies have shown in the Western Hemisphere, to the Western Europe and the, in North America, three to five seconds of eye contact indicates involvement. Three to five seconds of eye, eye contact, contact three indicates to five feet involvement. From the <laughs> These are good, These are good, yeah, These are good rules. Now we know 10 to 15 seconds of eye contact, known as the stare, <laughs> indicates one of two things. Intimacy, not a great idea, or intimidation. <laughs> just as bad. Now the eye dart, which means you're looking at the floor, at the ceiling, at your notes, uh, that's like half a second of eye contact, indicates anxiety or complete disinterest. So eye contact counts, go to three to five seconds. Now what do you do if you're dealing with a person from a group who you suspect will find eye contact inappropriate? Then my advice would be, uh, look at their forehead for two or three seconds, just above the eye level. Don't look at the floor. It indicates disinterest. So eye contact is important. Do it on the no. And open posture is important. Do it on the no. Now, what now, do you mean by open posture exactly? Number one, and this drives me insane with my residents, don't fold your hands over your chest. Mm-hmm. That either intimidates people, that shows hostility, that shows superiority. Watch yourself. If you're the kind of person who folds your hands over your chest, drop it. The bi-language there is bad news. Number two, do your best to avoid putting both hands on your hips. When you put both hands on your hips, it's a bit like your parents about to scold you. Mm -hmm. Get your hands off your hips. Get your hands off your chest. So what do you do with your hands? Hold them on your side or on your lap. In fact, I'm going to even go further and talk about the palms. Do you hold your palms up to the ceiling, down to the floor, or to keep them vertical, facing each other? So studies have clearly shown, go to YouTube and put down nonverbal communication. Studies have clearly shown when you're palm down, that's bossy and cold. When you're palm up, it's inviting and non-threatening. And when you're when your palms are vertical, perpendicular to the floor, that's neutral, very much like the handshake. So hands on your lap or at your sides, or you can hold a pen, I suppose. Palms up is inviting and not threatening. Palms down is pushing. Pointing is never a good idea. Arms crossed, never a good idea. Smiling is fantastic. And for those who can't smile, I'm going to tell you exactly how you learn to smile. Eye contact is central, but be culture-specific. So those are the important with visuals. Now, I just have to tell you this right off the bat. Studies have shown, and this is based on a book by Bert Decker. Bert Decker wrote a book called High Impact Communication. It was written about 30 years ago 
There's a new addition out. Bert Decker is a consultant to the Fortune 500 companies, a consultant to politicians. And believe me, if you heard of Bill Clinton and John Kennedy and Barack Obama, they are not born learning how to stand, how to talk, and how to posture. It's been training, training, training. And they use the Bert Decker method. As far as posture goes, this is all stolen from Bert Decker. I practice on the call slab, S-L-A-B. I steal like a bastard when I hear good ideas. <laughs> so here's what Bert Decker says about tone. Don't talk fast. Lower tones are better than high tones. And end your sentence going down, not up. So it's not, hello there, I'm Dr. Himmel. It's hello there, I'm Dr. Himmel. Lower tones and end your sentences on a downbeat. Now, does this seem contrived? Well, actually, it is a bit contrived. It is not your style. But the sad thing is, human beings respond to lower tones, lower speed, upward palms, eye contact, and the smile. It's all about the limbic system. Daniel Goldman in the book, Understanding Your Intelligence, Your Emotional Intelligence, goes through this in detail. Now, here's a hint about the smile. We know a third of the population always smiles. A third of the population always frowns. And a third of the population has a dead expression. So the expression I've heard is, if you're feeling in a good mood, don't forget to tell your face. So how do you smile? How do you practice smiling if you're a perpetual frowner? Well, you don't say smile. What you do is you raise your apples or your cheeks. And how do you do that? Just say three, three, three. For those members of the audience who want to practice smiling, stand in front of a mirror and go three, three, three. And at the end of it, what's going to happen is you'll have a great smile. So I've actually, on a very, very bad day, when I'm feeling rotten, when I've been dumb enough to do two shifts, when I'm stressed out, tired, hungry, have a full blood and irritable, I don't be able to decompensate. I've actually left the room, gone to the bathroom, and go three, 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 about 20 times. My smile comes back. It's an effective tool. You know what they say? Your emotions speak to your face. Your face speaks to your emotions. Your emotions speaks to your body, and your body speaks to your emotions. If you're feeling rotten and miserable and crummy, sit down, put your shoulders back, Lower your voice and say three. As miserable as you feel, your brain's going to think you're feeling better and you will feel better. These techniques of nonverbal communication are absolutely powerful. They're effective. Part of communication that impacts your message the most is nonverbals. And you have people in healthcare that have no concept of that. In a lifetime career of working in healthcare, you can do up to 150,000 patient interviews the tool we use the most, yet the least amount of education is dedicated to it. And to review Bert Decker's high-impact communication, here's a low-tone version. Don't talk fast. Lower tones are better than higher tones. And end your sentence in lower tones. Jean-Pierre, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you say to the patient. So you had mentioned how you introduce yourself. What are the, some of the do's and don'ts in, in terms of what you actually say to the patient? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that some of the do's, things like repeating or echoing what the patient says to you, 
is really critical, I think, because if nothing else, that's probably the most effective way of expressing to them that you understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get more into that when we talk about the difficult patient, but this is even in your regular, any patient that isn't a difficult patient, just your Absolutely, patient. absolutely. Okay. I, I think not only repeating or echoing the content of what they're saying, but the essentially the spirit of what they're saying. In other words, acknowledging their feelings. So we always learn things like someone comes up with an ankle sprain to say something like, oh, you've rolled your ankle, that must hurt. Actually acknowledging the sentiment, the feeling behind the experience of being there really goes to building a bridge with your patient. Again, that might seem evident, but boy, it's so easy to, to completely focus upon the mechanical hard medicine side of things and not acknowledge the feeling of their time in the emergency department. Once you actually feel that you've, you know, you've done your history and your physical appropriately, I think if nowhere else, the emergency department is the most critical place to then map out for your patient what the next steps are. You never want to say, I've, you know, examined the patient, you know, you've done your history and then just say, fine, we'll do some tests and walk out of the room. I think at that point, establishing expectations for what they can experience after that point is probably the most important thing. Because as soon as you step out, that's where the period of uncertainty begins. So if you've actually given them a rudder by which they can sort of gauge where they're going, I think that is remarkably, remarkably important. So Anton, you'd said really astutely in your in your opening segment about your expectations maybe not aligning with the expectations or the agenda of the patient themselves. Establishing and understanding what their agenda is is going to be one of the most fundamental things that you can do because often someone will come in and say, I was in a car accident, my ankle hurts, I've got some neck pain, but their agenda is is that they need a note for work. And it's so easy to sort of cone in on the neck pain and ankle, which are clearly important. But sometimes a simple statement is, you know, you've been through a lot, or this has been a really crummy day for you. What are you most concerned about here today? What's the most important thing that I can do for you? If you're able to pull that out, to understand that, right away, you also have now established your endpoint for what you need to accomplish in terms of this relationship that you've now established with that patient. Finding out their agenda only makes your job easier. (laughs) It makes the nurse's job easier. It makes everyone's job so much easier. Yeah, one thing I've learned is to avoid the word why. Absolutely. The trouble with the word why is to a scientist, why is an objective question, which means explain the reasons to me. But to many people, why is an accusatory word. You know, I remember as a child being asked, why are you late for school today? Why did you eat that? Why, why? So I stay away from why. I use words like, what made you decide to come today? Or what are you worried about today? And when I'm really unclear what's bugging the patient, the patient's very anxious, I look him down and say, you know, tell me something. What's your biggest fear? If I think they're worried about cancer, they want a CT scan, they want an MRI, they're worried they're going to die, something horrible is going on, I actually say, what's your biggest fear? I think that is so crucial, and I don't think we do that enough. I think we're almost afraid to ask that question, but it's paramount. It's what patients need to hear is us asking, what are your fears? What are you anxious about? Help me understand, and how can I help? Yeah, I think we do underestimate the stress and anxiety and fear that most patients that come to the emergency department, you know, we're so used to the environment, and for some of these people, it's the very first time they've been in the department, it's the first time they've been sick, and they really do believe that they're going to die or something really awful is going to happen. 
Sure. Yeah, there's a famous book called Getting to Yes. And one of the first principles of Getting to Yes is identify the person's interests, not their position. For example, someone might come in and say, I want to see to you my head scan. Well, if that's your starting point, your ending point, you're going to go into a battle about a CT scan. Now, of course, your interest isn't the CT scan. Your interest is, have I got a brain tumor or a stroke? So you want to figure out what their interests are. And the way you get their interests are by asking questions. There's no other way. If, on the other hand, you assume their first opening gesture, their position is, I want a CAT scan, I want a blood test, and that's the end of it, then you're into a battle of their position and your position as opposed to a creative solution to their interests. So the interests are a big deal. And of course, you want the patient to know your interests. What are your interests? Do what's best for them. So you have to reveal your intent, especially if it's going bad. Yeah, you know, that's a common thing that people obviously come to the emergency department and say, I need X, I need Y, I I need Z. And I think there's there's a fair bit of human nature involved that I think a lot of times we hear that and right away in our mind, that's the last thing this person's going to get out of me. They're not going to tell me what they need. And I, I never say things like, you don't need that. I mean, eventually I may get to that point to say something like, you know what, that's not the best test. Or fortunately, I don't think that's necessary right now. But I never tell someone, that's you don't need that. This alludes back to the point you made about patient satisfaction causing worse outcomes. If you satisfy the patient by giving it to their position, odds are you're going to get worse outcomes. But if you understand behind every position there are interests, behind every interest there are fears, and know the questions to ask, such as, what are your biggest fears? What are you worried about? Then you're going to approach satisfaction and you're going to blend it with the right thing to do, as opposed to just giving in, getting the wrong test, satisfying what you think the patient's concerns are, and getting a worse outcome. I've got another question, Jean-Pierre. How do you know all this stuff? I mean, quite frankly, I knew none of this stuff until 10, 15 years ago. And the only way I discovered it was by studying and reading and reading and reading. How did you come to these insights? Because with me, it took years of studying and reading. How did you discover it? I I really don't know. I guess this might sound a little wishy-washy, but, you know, interacting with people... That's the good stuff, right? I mean, the really good stuff is opening a chest or, you know, you know, tubing someone or, or doing a surgical airway. That's the really, really, really good stuff because we have to say that on an EM podcast. But interacting with people really is the good stuff. And it, 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 it occurred to me a number of years ago. So in our, in our department, we see in excess of 100,000 people, a true minimum of those people, a minority of these people get admitted, Right. Another way of saying that is that a minimum of those people are sick. Another way of saying is that a minimum of those people really need medical attention, right? Another way of saying that is that we're not really doing a whole lot for the vast majority of people that we see through the emergency department. Now, that's contentious, but but clearly we're doing something. So what is it that we're doing? We're interacting with people. We are communicating. We're establishing relationships. I don't. I, maybe some people don't want to admit this, but that's the vast majority of emergency medicine is establishing relationships with people. So guess what? If that's what you're going to do, first of all, you should be good at it, but you should also try to enjoy yourself. Like If you don't like interacting with people, the emergency department is not the place for you. And it just so happens that I like meeting people. 
I guess, I guess that's one of the big things as well. But the other thing is this. It, it gets back to what, what you were just talking about, Walter, as well. You know, the one term that comes up on day one of medical school is this idea of empathy. I, again, I think for some people that just sounds like almost like a punchline now, that word, empathy. But the reality is, is that empathy is the most important quality that you can have as a medical care professional, without question. Because the thing is this, is that if you can truly master empathy, it's virtually impossible to get frustrated with your patient. It's virtually impossible to not provide patient-centered care. In fact, one of the residency program directors in Canada, I went to hear speak at a conference, and he told the audience at this conference that the question he asked residents who are applying to emergency medicine, what they thought the most important quality of emergency physician was, he got answers like, they've got to really know their stuff well, they've got to be able to work under pressure, that sort of thing. But the answer he was looking for that he almost never got, and that he thinks was the right answer, was empathy. So let's talk a little bit more about what docs can do who may not feel like they can naturally be empathic. What can they do at the bedside to at least show the patient that they are attempting to be empathic? And from the perception of the patient, they feel like you're being empathic. For sure. If, if nothing else, if you can only do one thing, it gets back to what we talked about. Try to understand their agenda. It really is seen from the other side of the bed, seeing why they're there. If, if that's the only thing you can do when it comes to empathy, that's nine-tenths of the job right there. I think one line that you can say is, I really want to see this through your eyes. Help me understand what brought you here today. Help me understand how I can help you today. And that, I, I can't imagine a scenario in which that doesn't pull out the, the patient's agenda. Of course, someone, and someone has said this before, you're the doctor, you should know, right? And then, and then there's always a, an empathic answer to that as well. So help me understand is a great question. Tell me more is a great question. The patient I don't know. Here's what I say. Well, if you knew, what do you think you might say? You see, patients usually know. When they say, I don't know, what often means I'm not comfortable telling you. In fact, I'm not comfortable telling myself sometimes or telling you. So say, well, if you knew, what do you think you might say? If it wasn't you but your brother who was here, how would you explain that to me? You basically have to give them permission to say things that they might be embarrassed to say, or you have to give their imagination a permission to start working. These are wonderful questions to bring out the truth in a non-threatening manner. Now, empathy has been studied. There's a famous psychologist called J. Mitchell Perry, P-R-R-Y, and you can go to YouTube, which is a fantastic resource, actually, put in the words J. Mitchell Perry. He has explained exactly what empathy is in terms of technique. Now, I'll say once again, this is so important to realize, the biggest sociopath in the world can use these techniques and get away with it for a while. The most wonderful person in the world can fail to use these techniques and his wonderful soul be totally hidden and exposed. So my advice is, know these techniques. My hope is to use genuinely empathetically. But my experience is when you use empathetic techniques, even if you're basically a withdrawn, quiet, self-centered person, it tends to bring the best out in you. Yeah, I find that sometimes there's a patient in front of me that for many reasons are driving me crazy, 
And if I force myself to use these empathetic lines, I actually feel myself becoming more empathetic. Absolutely. You have no choice. Your behavior talks to your soul, and your soul talks to your behavior. If your soul is crappy, then practice good behavior. It'll improve your soul. So if you're one of those people who finds it really hard to be empathetic in the face of a patient who's driving you crazy... Dr. Himmel will now explain the four steps of empathy. Okay, so there's, there's four steps to empathy. It's very similar to the four steps of reflective listening. And this is particularly important when things are going badly, but it's fantastically effective when things are going well. Number one, when someone says something, step number one is called the echo. Repeat what was said. The person said, I've had a headache for four or five days. The echo is... You've had a headache for four or five days. Yep, it's been four or five days. The patient will never say, copycat. (laughs) You see, when you echo what was said, you're giving a message. The message is, I heard it. As the patient goes on, you paraphrase what was said. For example, I've had a headache for four or five days. The paraphrase is, you've had a headache for a long time. That means you got it. Now, of course, you want to create trust. So trust is about competence and caring. How do you communicate caring? There's only one way you can communicate caring, and that's to show feelings and to deal with feelings. Now, of course, good body language communicates lovely feelings. So the echo is step number one. The paraphrase step number two. Step number three is identify the feeling. You've had a headache for four days. The echo. That's a long time. The paraphrase. You must be worried about this or anxious about this. That's the identification of the feeling. When patients have their feelings identified, it is phenomenally powerful. It produces trust. That means not only did you hear it and you got it, but you understand their feelings about it. And the fourth step after the echo and the paraphrase and the identification of feeling is absolutely remarkable. It's called validation. People want to be heard and understood and validated. Once someone feels heard, understood and validated, you can move on. The battle is over. They've had their basic needs met. and You can move on to dealing with important issues, almost as important as the first step. And the fourth step is the following. Validate the feelings. And here's your best line. And frankly, it's not a line. It's the truth. For me, it's become a truth. And it's the following. I can see why you feel that way. Someone's been waiting five hours. They're hostile. They're angry. You can feel it. What do you do? We'll deal with self-talk later because until you control yourself, you can't control anything. We haven't discussed self-control. That'll come later because self-control is our issue. Here's what you do. You've been here for five hours. That's a long time. Sometimes I just look at the chart and say, wow, you've been here a long time. You must be angry if they seem angry. You must be exhausted if they seem exhausted. Identify the feeling that they have. I will pause for a second, look them in the eye and say, I can see why you feel that way. Or you know what? I feel the same way about it. Or sometimes if it's really bad, I can say, I agree with you. It's been a long time. I feel awful about it. I think one of the most helpful things to establish a good relationship is that if appropriate, of course, Everything that we're saying has an asterisk on it, saying that if this is appropriate. But if you can normalize the experience for the patient, 
that goes tremendous lengths. And I can use a good example. Um, this is just, I think, a week ago. Uh, a young guy, a 30-year-old guy, came in who clearly had issues of addiction. And the story is that uh, the night before, he did a ton of cocaine, had a number of drinks at the bar, came home, did a ton of amphetamines when he got home. And then he proceeded to shove a marker up his ass. And then the next morning, he awoke with rectal pain. And then he came into the emergency department, and his most immediate concern was that he had this pain. But his bigger issue, his bigger agenda was his issues of addiction. But can you imagine, if you take an empathic approach to this guy, can you imagine how profoundly embarrassing that must be to sit at the triage desk and to actually explain that to, to a complete stranger that you've known for two seconds? And then you are made to tell the story again to this guy who comes in who, if you don't actually address it, who is ultimately so much more powerful for you in that moment. Can you imagine how horrible that experience must be? So you know what I did for him? I, I acknowledged the fact that I said, you know what, this must be really embarrassing for you. This must be really, really tough for you. But can I tell you the truth? This happens all the time. We see people like this all of the time in the emergency department. And I swear you could, if you'd filmed it, you could, you could see his disposition change in that moment. So if you can somehow normalize the experience, if it's a big bad thing or a little, little tiny thing, I think that goes tremendous lengths to patient-centered care. Uh, I agree totally. The other thing that I often tell people, particularly drug addicts, nasty people, depressed people, hateful people, I'll sit down and actually sit down next to them and say, you're having a tough time, aren't you? Or you've had a tough life. Or you've had a tough year. In that moment, not only do I feel better, the person absolutely relaxes and opens up. It's phenomenal. It's probably the first time I've ever heard that. Right. The yeah. only chance for a large segment of society to be treated respectfully is to visit the emergency department. Because the cops, their landlord, their tenants, the spouse, their ex-spouse, their parents are not going to show them any respect. It is a phenomenal thing. And actually, uh, as hard as this may sound at times, the fact that I say it actually makes you genuinely feel positive about that person. Almost never have I, not almost never, never have I had an adverse response. Never. It, it, it's had a, a major relaxing effect uh, on me. I remember Lou Holtz is a famous uh, public speaker. He used to be a coach for the Notre Dame football team. And what did Lou Holtz say? And I repeat this to myself when I'm having a bad day with somebody. Lou Holtz said, people need love the most when they deserve it the least. People need love the most when they deserve it the least. A large segment of our population are the ones who are the most suffering, miserable people in our society. They love the most and they deserve it the least. You see, working in the marriage, we get a bizarre view of the world. We forget that the employed people, the happy people, the healthy people, the people with primary care, often don't show up. We're seeing an odd segment of society. We're their only hope. And, and validating them is extremely effective. And it's also very effective in making my life way easier, way more pleasant. You know, that issue of hope, by the way, is, is another big, <laughs> huge thing. Can you think of many other situations in life where we, where you, a person, is able to give another person genuine hope? 
And this is another thing that I try sometimes too. And this often goes along with the depressed patient who has just finally, despite their efforts to, to, to get by, often find themselves at the end of the rope in the emergency department. And the one statement I, I'll often use is, I know or I'm sure that this must feel like the lowest point in your life, that you have to sit here and talk to some guy like me. But you know what? This is the moment where things get better. This is where things get back on track. And you can actually, again, sometimes physically see that that actually changes a person's demeanor. And I don't think that's disingenuous in any sort of fashion. This truly is the moment where things yeah. can get back. Yeah. So Jean-Pierre is a master. He, there's something else he, he said. I've heard him say several times. I've actually waited outside of the room to hear what he says. And this absolutely floored me. When he sees a family who's being quite hostile and aggressive and they're worried about a relative, he'll turn to them and say absolutely genuinely, I can see you really care about your loved one. Now, I've been unable to paraphrase and say that yet because I'm basically a very shy, timid person, so I have trouble with some of these emotional terms. But I've heard him say, I can see you care about your loved one. The hostility ends instantaneously. So being a nice guy, being empathetic, it's not about being a wimp. And it's interesting, like, I have to acknowledge anyone who worked with me you know, in early in my eMERGE career, I was a pit bull. Um, you know, at triage, it was like, oh, I'll get up in your face. You're going to get up in mine? I'll get up in your face. I almost relished the... The, <laughs> the confrontation. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And because I thought, how dare you? And it was, you know, protecting. I was one of the, you know, the bigger girls out there and triaging with a little Trezzy and Trezzy used to be very quiet. And so I felt protective and I felt, how dare you? We're here to help. And I internalized it. I made it personal. And it's only been in the last few years that a, kind of a light bulb went off. And, you know, the sick patient, absolutely. You know, I will pour out my heart and soul to someone, but it's, it's the people that maybe aren't that sick or are or challenging it's only the light bulb again, like just went off and to understand that there's always a story behind that behavior. And I need to be able to walk in someone else's shoes. And if I cannot do that, then I don't deserve to be at this front line. And if it was my loved one, would I be any different? Would I treat them any differently? And if it is, then I need to pause and reflect because at the end of the day, these people are vulnerable and they have surrendered to us. And that is an honor. And I think that is moving forward is that's, that's what I look at it like now, but it took, and I, I don't, I don't know what happened that made me go, Anne, you're a bitch. <laughs> and, and to go, this is wrong. Yeah. So I've known Anne for many years now. And you want to tell the audience, what did you do before you were an RN? So, uh, yes, I was a firefighter. Just the audience knows, Anne is no wimp. Anne is <laughs> tough and strong, and she can take on any guy anytime and win. So you're not listening to a, a wimp. <laughs> you're listening to somebody who was pretty confident and pretty tough, who's made some insights, learned things through study. Oh, i got to tell you something. I, I've seen her evolution over the last two, three years. It's nothing short of amazing. Uh, she's gone from being... Wonderful, pleasant person who, when the wrong buttons got pushed, could give better than she got, to being phenomenally diplomatic, graceful, professional, and solution-focused. I'd like to know how you did it. 
at the end of the day, going home after a 12-hour shift and going and reflecting. I, mean, I think I've always been self-reflective and going, wow, that that's just it just didn't sit well because I, I, I want to think of myself as someone compassionate and wanting to help. Um, and then th- those two don't mesh. They're polar opposites. And it isn't about me. And to see, you know, and to see the evolution and how these skills can change scenarios. I mean, I've experimented and I've seen the difference, you know, between that hostile, aggressive patient and walking into them with an open, with open body language, smiling and extending my hand instantly brings their guard down. And they're like, oh, you're not ready. You're not here to fight me. It's like, no. And how can I help you? And, And just seeing how it can make someone at peace. And that's a pretty darn good feeling. Healing is tonic for the soul. I want to talk about humility. I've heard a great definition about humility. You know, if you want to be a great professional, you have to have humility. And humility is not about thinking less of yourself. Humility is about thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Well put. The truly humble people are profoundly confident. They're integrated, learning who they are, and their behavior is consistent with who they are. And the benefits are the following. Instead of going home having four cigarettes, three beers, two muffins, two chocolate eclairs, you go home feeling energized. It's not just about the patient doing great. (laughs) You benefit from good behavior. Absolutely. Your culture benefits from good behavior. Your colleagues, your department, your hospital benefits from good behavior. Need I say more? That's the end of part one of this episode. Go on to part two where Walter, Jean-Pierre, and Anne will give you specific strategies on how to deal with particular difficult patients and a lot more. Your emotions speak to your face. Your face speaks to your emotions. Finding out their agenda only makes your job easier. If your soul is crappy, then practice good behavior. It'll improve your soul. The vast majority of emergency medicine is establishing relationships with people. 